Last week, we once again encountered the enemies of God, scheming to destroy the work of God. Sanballat and Tobiah were beginning to realize that the only thing that would stop the Jews from doing the Lord's work would be to put them to death. So they planned and prepared to catch the Jews unawares and attack them with the edge of the sword. By God's grace, Nehemiah was informed of their plot. He first went to the Lord in prayer, then he did what he could to safeguard the people and their work. Using this background as a launching pad, we looked at Ephesians 6, where Paul instructs Christians to put on the whole armor of God and stand prepared for the attack. And in this way, we too are always to be ready until even the very day that our leader, Jesus Christ, commands that the trumpet be sounded and we go to where he is to be with him forever. Let's pray and then we will read Nehemiah chapter 5, 1 to 13. Father in heaven, we are um, heartbroken this morning that we cannot be meeting together. Truly, we are, if folks listening are of the same heart, I am um, entirely fatigued of the narrative surrounding this virus. Father, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would lift us up, that you would help us to stand strong, to demonstrate courage in a world that is absolutely saturated in cowardice, uh, that the Christian church would not be part of the problem, but would be part of the solution for all of the suffering that is going on. We pray this morning that as we look into your word, into Nehemiah, that you would bring to light in our minds some truth that will encourage us forward again as we continue through in the weeks to come under this oppressive lockdown. Thank you for this time together, even though it is um, together in a strange way. And uh, we just ask that your spirit would bind our hearts in unity this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's read um, Nehemiah chapter 5 and the first 13 verses. Reading from the English Standard. I usually read from the New King James, but this is what I have this morning. So here we go. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. 
They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Title today's message, The Enemy Within. The Jews in the end of chapter 4 ended on a very positive note. The people of God were doing the work of God, and they did it despite all obstacles. The enemies were outside the wall looking for an opportunity to attack. Inside the wall, the Jews set their eyes on the rubbish left over from the sack of Jerusalem decades earlier. Today, we're going to be looking at rubbish of a different sort. But Nehemiah, noticing their eyes set on the rubbish, never allowed them to be discouraged. He continued to set their focus where it belonged, on the almighty God of Israel. In this way, they worked with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, and they would not let anything hinder them. But chapter 5 mentions almost nothing about the wall around Jerusalem. There is a brief passing reference to it in verse 16, but that's it. And the rebuilding project is the sole reason Nehemiah is even in Jerusalem. Whatever it is that is being discussed in chapter 5 must be important enough for Nehemiah to take note of it, deal with it, and record it. It's difficult to tell whether this is a chronological account of the events. Does chapter 5 actually follow chapter 4 in time? I don't know. It was common for ancient writers to pay little heed to recording events in the order they took place. Rather, they would structure their descriptions in an order of importance or some other form. What we are reading in chapter 5 may have been an ongoing problem that Nehemiah had to face throughout much of the building process. Regardless, God's Spirit inspired chapter 5 to be recorded, so let's look at it and see what we can learn. Chapter 5 records the first instance of infighting amongst Jewish brethren. I want us to reflect for a moment on our instinctual response to the two types of conflicts we've seen Nehemiah manage in this book. When the enemy was an outsider, someone that was openly rebelling against God and his people, and Nehemiah took a stand against them, it inspired us, or at least me, toward justice, courage, faith, hope, and unity. We say to ourselves, you go, Nehemiah. You show them the greatness of our God and Savior. We want to fall in line behind Nehemiah and take up the Lord's cause with him, don't we? But, 
as I read chapter 5 and see the people of God divided, and I see these problems within the Jewish community developing, I am not inspired at all by the corrective actions Nehemiah has to take. I most certainly would not want to be in Nehemiah's sandals. In fact, I want to say, come on, you guys, don't do this to one another. Nehemiah's disciplinary actions inspire a whole different set of reactions in my heart, and they are not uplifting. The history of the church has borne this out as well. When Christians were faced with an enemy that could not be mistaken, an enemy that wanted to blot the church out, Christians united together in prayer and good works against their adversary. When the enemy was the Roman Empire or Gnostic heretics or Islam or a corrupted papacy, Christians bonded together to face adversity with faith and courage. Sadly, when we forget who the real enemy is, we start looking around amongst our own for someone to contend with. And don't misunderstand me. God has granted the church at different times and places pockets of peace so that we could refine our understanding of who God is and what his word says. And I am truly grateful for the work of these men and women who committed themselves to the Lord and redeemed the time to immerse themselves in the word of God for the benefit of all the generations to come. But when our enemy is not physically right in front of us, it's easy to forget that we are even soldiers, let alone where we ought to be doing battle. I think this is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul has to remind us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, because that's the natural response we have to opposition. We see the person right in front of us opposing the word of God and the advance of his kingdom, so we attack the person. But the real battle is taking place much deeper than that. Ideas that are contrary to the truth of scripture are lies. And lies are weapons the devil uses to deceive people, keeping them in opposition to the gospel. And this is why every battle the Christian enters must be initiated by prayer. We are entering a field of ideas, a spiritual field, unseen and therefore the territory of the unseen. Paul calls them principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and spiritual hosts. In our day and age, and I think I would be negligent if I didn't inform you of this, the lie we are doing battle with is Marxism, often called socialism, and it is a philosophy that is entirely atheistic in its origins. In almost every way imaginable, it goes contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture. We are not battling masks and lockdowns. We are battling the ideology that leads to masks and lockdowns. And that ideology is socialism in which government claims to replace God as the highest moral authority. 
Unfortunately, our current provincial and federal governments have embraced this philosophy, whether unwittingly or otherwise, I don't know. But the Christian's most powerful weapon against it is prayer. So that God himself enters the fray on behalf of his people. After prayer, we need to communicate the truth of the gospel to others because when a person becomes a believer and is indwelt by the Spirit of God, they can be led by him into all truth. A Christian Marxist or a Christian socialist is as common as a circle with four corners. Prayer and presenting the gospel are the two things necessary to every Christian soldier. Beyond this, God has given each of us unique gifts and abilities so that we can be effective with whatever opportunities he brings our way. Our only poor option is to sit on the sidelines. Okay, I've wandered far afield. Let's return to Nehemiah. The work stopped because of strife within the community of God's people. The enemy could not stop the work of God by direct attack. But the work could be stopped when God's people weren't unified and working together. When God's people fight one another, they certainly are neither fighting the real enemy nor getting God's work done. Let me read some passages from the New Testament that emphasize the importance of remaining united, especially in the face of difficulty. Romans 12, 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Romans 15, 5 and 6. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may, with one mind and one mouth, Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 13.11 Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Philippians 2, 1 and 2 Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And finally, 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. I would like to take a few moments here to address a current situation in churches everywhere, and we are not immune to it in our church either. As a pastor, I am getting pulled in two directions right now in how people believe we ought to be conducting ourselves as believers during these COVID lockdowns. On the one hand, there are people who would like our church to remain open with no restrictions and let come what may 
in terms of consequences. Others believe we should go exclusively to online services until the authorities ease the restrictions and allow us to meet in person again. And both positions have merit. Both positions have strong grounds to support them. Those of you that know me well know where I stand in this dispute. But I'm here to tell you this. Remember that the people you disagree with in this group of believers are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love them. Be in unity with them. Try to understand where they're coming from. Be in the word as you navigate these difficult societal problems and pray for wisdom. It is not merely your opinion at stake as the world watches how we respond to fellow believers during this time. The message of the gospel is at stake. John the Evangelist wrote these words of Jesus in his gospel. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Somehow, we need to find a way to love our fellow Christians, even when they're wrong. I don't want us to be maskers and anti-maskers. I don't want us to be vaxxers and anti-vaxxers. I don't want us to be assemblers and anti-assemblers. I want us to be forgiven, blood-bought followers of the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. Compared to that, all other distinctions should pale to nothing. If or when we come out of the other side of this so-called pandemic, I truly hope we can do so without any lingering bitterness. None of us has the whole picture. Let's be humble enough to admit it. Let's not allow disagreements within our ranks prevent God's work from going forward. Well, that's verse 1. Got 12 to go. So get your lunches ready. Just kidding. Verse 1 is usually the longest. Greed was the reason for strife among God's people. The Jews that were crying out in verse 1 gave three reasons, and some of us might think that they might be excuses for their financial troubles. Number one, their families were large, and they were having difficulty finding enough food for everyone. Number two, they borrowed money against their homes and land to buy food during the famine. And number three, they couldn't afford the taxes, so they sold their children into slavery, um, and more like indentured servitude, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later, and couldn't buy them back because of their previous debts. Their troubles seem to have been caused by a combination of poor decisions and difficult circumstances. And these money problems harmed the unity among the people of God. But I want to remind us that money problems are very rarely only money problems. It's easy to think that if we just had more money, our financial problems would go away. This is a lie. And it's proven 
to be a lie. At least 75% of people that get a financial windfall of some sort, like a large inheritance or lottery win, end up in much worse shape within 5 to 10 years. And that 75% doesn't include those that end up dying because of excessive living. The sad truth of the matter is that if a person doesn't know how to handle small amounts of money, he will know even less how to manage large amounts of money. The same problems they had while they were poor will soon show up again, often worse than ever. Let's read together Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Jesus telling a parable here. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said to him, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then, he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is one of the Lord's favorite parables, and he told it at different times in different ways. We read a similar account recently from Luke chapter 19. There are a couple of things to note here. First, it brings to mind the old saying, if you need something done, ask someone who is busy. If you need help with something and you go to the coffee shop and ask for help from someone that sits there every day for three hours, they will have no end of excuses as to why they are too busy. And you know I'm right. 
But if you find someone that is actually doing something all of the time, they will almost always make time to help you as well. The words of the Lord Jesus in this parable, pardon me, in this parable are so universally true that scientists in a broad range of disciplines actually call it the Matthew principle or the Matthew effect, a term coined by sociologist Robert K. Merton in 1968. Most of us have been born and raised in Canada, though. We have been so brainwashed for demands for diversity, inclusion, and equity, I call it the D-I-E philosophy, or die for short, when we read this parable, we think, shouldn't the leader divide the earnings equally among his servants? Each servant should get five talents at the end, shouldn't they? Wouldn't that be more fair? The fact of the matter is, and real life has borne this out without exception, that the servant who squandered the one talent would squander five as well. And the servant that made five and had all his earnings removed would lose all ambition to continue working. That's socialism in a nutshell. And ignoring this one principle taught by Jesus resulted in the needless deaths of over a hundred million people in the 20th century. And Canada is heading there again unless God's people get serious about prayer for this one great nation. And the Matthew principle doesn't only apply to money. It applies to every imaginable area of life. I've said all this to say this. These Jewish men and women thought their problems were all financial. But there was a lot more going on here. Because Jesus indirectly wrote the Old Testament and knew the Matthew principle before he told his parable in the New Testament, and because he understood the heart of man, he gave principle for, principles for his people to follow so that they wouldn't needlessly fall into financial ruin. In the writings of Moses, God plainly laid out provisions for the Israelites so that the poor would be taken care of. The rich were never to charge interest to their poorer Israelite brethren. Crops were never to be harvested to the edges so that the hungry could glean what was left to meet their needs. No Israelite was ever to be bought or sold by someone else. They could volunteer for indentured servitude, and what that was was to work to pay off any debts, but they could never sell another person as a slave. And finally, a jubilee year was set aside every 50 years in which all debts were forgiven and all indentured servants set free. It seems that the Jews in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day failed on every count, and the less fortunate were now paying the price. So they cried out, to Nehemiah. Nehemiah's immediate reaction was anger. And from what I can see, there were three reasons he was angry. He became angry because these money problems were due to greed. 
He became angry because these money problems led to a lack of unity among the people of God. And finally, he was angry because these money problems stopped the work of the Lord. Wisely, Nehemiah waited until he cooled off before he dealt with the situation, a lesson I'm sure we all wish we would have known in years past. Once again, this was great leadership from Nehemiah. He was a man passionate enough to get angry, but wise enough not to act until he had considered the matter carefully. Surely, Nehemiah was aware of the writings of King Solomon. Proverbs 15.18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. And Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So after considering carefully for some time, Nehemiah went straight to the source of the problem. He was no coward. When people were in the wrong, he confronted them. He told the truth and confronted the leaders with the writings of Moses that they knew to be the very words of God. Usury, that word that you see in the New King James and the King James, is interest that is either too high, and in our passage it looks as though uh, the poor were being charged 12%, or is interest that should not be charged at all. The Bible says it is wrong to make money off someone's financial need. If someone needs money for the most basic things in life, they should be given money, not loaned it at interest. Of course, loaning money at interest is permitted for things that are not absolute necessities. Yet God's people must always use great wisdom and self-control in borrowing money. Almost every form of financial borrowing in today's world is unwise. Borrowing to buy a home or start a business is one thing. Borrowing to have new furniture or a new car or pay Christmas present bills is something else entirely. In the case of the people crying out to Nehemiah, they were borrowing money from their wealthy Jewish brethren to feed their families, and according to the law, should not have been charged interest. And their financial problems began to snowball. Again, from Proverbs, chapter 22 and verse 7, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Nehemiah clearly demonstrated the wickedness of the wealthy Jews in this situation. He reminded the guilty moneylenders of everything they had gone through to free many of these same people from slavery to the surrounding nations. They had sought them out and redeemed them. For what? To put them back into bondage? The Jews, because of their covenant with God, were to be a light to the nations through obedience to the law of Moses. This would display the beauty of God's character to anyone who had eyes to see and ears to hear. Instead, they ignored God's law 
and were seeking their own fortune at the expense of the very character of God. Did you hear what I just said, Christian? The life of the Christian must be lived in obedience to the commands of Christ, particularly to love God and to love each other, so that we can be a light to the nations as well. When we fail to live in obedience to Christ, we do so at the very expense of the character of our Savior. It is not just a white lie you are telling. It is a black smear on the name of Jesus Christ. Nehemiah recognized this 24 centuries ago. Would that we would see it as clearly today. Nehemiah asks a very powerful question then. He says, should you not walk in the fear of our God? The fear of God has become an archaic topic in today's culture. But can you imagine if people today, from the greatest to the least, conducted themselves in the fear of the Lord? And then Nehemiah began solving the problem, and he did not fix it through compromise. Nehemiah didn't say to the people, look, you reduce your interest rate a little, and you work longer hours, and then everybody will be happy. No. He said, restore to them, even this day, everything that is theirs. Nehemiah was not asking the nobles and the rulers to just feel bad or just stop what they were doing. They had to set right the wrong that they had done. This makes me think of Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? For a reminder, let's read Luke chapter 19 and the first 10 verses. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord. I give half my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The parallels in these passages from Nehemiah 5 and Luke 19 are so striking that I can't help but wonder if Jesus wasn't thinking of this passage in Nehemiah during his encounter with Zacchaeus. It was a financial issue as well as an obedience issue. Zacchaeus was immediately willing to restore what he had greedily taken. Jesus mentions that this Zacchaeus 
is also a son of Abraham. It's a beautiful story, and it pulls at my heartstrings. Finally, Nehemiah records the response of the wealthy who had done wrong. Their words immediately to Nehemiah were, We will restore it. Too few of us are willing to admit we are wrong and to do what is right, especially if pride and money are involved and it might cost us. And also, Nehemiah assures accountability. Sometimes, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The people had already agreed to do what they were told. Perhaps accountability is a missing step in dealing with an area where you are having a hard time doing the right thing. Nehemiah told these men that they were accountable to God and they were accountable to him. If you are truly struggling with some sin in your life today, or you want to renew your commitment to Christ, or perhaps embrace Jesus Christ as Savior for the very first time, telling someone is so important. When we have this sense of accountability, we can redouble our commitment in some area of life. This is part of the reason that Jesus commanded us to observe the rituals of baptism and communion. It is a public commitment to that which has been privately embraced within our hearts. This is why many believe it is so important that wedding vows be made in front of God, friends, and family. When we begin to struggle in whatever way that looks in our life, Others can come alongside us and remind us of our commitment and encourage us, including in prayer. It is especially important in the lives of young or new Christians. The longer we walk with the Lord, the more keenly aware we are of his presence at every moment. But early on in our marriages or our relationships with the Lord, it can be so helpful to be reminded by others to walk carefully and fulfill our commitment. So I'm going to close today with this challenge. I want each of us to think of something in our lives that we are committed to changing by the Lord's grace. If you are saying to yourself, there's nothing in my life that needs changing, then congratulations, you have qualified to bring the message next week. But if there's something in our lives that we are committed to changing by the Lord's grace, then I want you to tell someone about it and ask them to keep you accountable as much as it's in their strength to do so and to pray. Yeah, I'm asking you to leave your comfort zone. And that's out of character for me. But if we are always comfortable, we can never progress, can we? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have been honored and blessed to be in your word again this morning. We so long to have a Nehemiah in our lives. And we recognize that at so many points, Jesus Christ is our Nehemiah, our great leader, 
the one who encourages us and lifts us lifts us up and admonishes us and gets us to work and and we are so grateful that each one of us have this but as a group of believers we would ask that you would raise up a man to take charge during this very pivotal time in history someone with great courage great strength and great commitment to the truth of scripture we ask for our political leaders that you would give them wisdom that you would open their eyes to the truth and that those that stubbornly close their eyes and their hearts against you that you would bring down and raise up others in their place that would have eyes to see and ears to hear thank you for each person in our fellowship in our body of believers I pray especially this morning that we would be united that our hearts would be knit to one another especially to those with whom we disagree that the fact that Jesus paid it all for me and that Jesus paid it all for that person as well would diminish to nothing any other disagreements we may have I pray that as we go forward in this week that you would release us from the oppression that uh, our governments are trying to impose upon us and help us to live in freedom and joy and peace and to be an example to others in our community that they too can experience what it is that Jesus Christ offers to each person. Thank you for the technology even to meet in this unusual way. We pray that as we go through this week your spirit would go with us and we thank you for this time together in Jesus name. Amen.